which kind of goes along with how we're starting this. Telling Psalm 23, it says, Who is my shepherd? I shall not want. He maketh me lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies, and thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I dwell in the house of Yahuwah forever. So I don't know if any of you have ever heard that before. <laughs> It's, uh, I, I, I read it, not that you don't know it and are not familiar with it and not don't believe it. And we do, or it seems like we're walking through the valley of the shadow of death. Um, but it talks about the paths of righteousness, right? And that word path is Magal from Agal. And it means a circular track, like a rampart, you know, on the walls around a city, you would have a rampart that goes around the walls. And they used to have chariot races and all that stuff on those. And that's what this word is. It's cyclical, circular, right? And the paths of righteousness, the cycles of righteousness is the way it should be read. And that's, you know, we've talked about this at length before, but the whole Middle Eastern Hebrew idea of, um, you know, there's, it's the same story over and over and over and over and over again. It gives you a different people, different times, different places, different conditions, but it's always the same story. And it's, it's just like on the rampart. If you take off anywhere on the rampart and you run all the way around it or ride your chariot all the way around it and you get back to where you started, you've completed a cycle, but you're, you're exactly where you started. And that's kind of the way uh, scripture is written. You know, it's, and it's hard for the, the Western mind to, to think about that because we don't think that way. You know, we say, oh, I'm going to the store. Well, you might be going to the store, but you're coming back, right? It, it, the trip is actually a cycle. We just don't see it that way. And when we think of our Christianity, our walk, our salvation or anything, we think of it as, you know, it's a walk, right? From, uh, from unholiness to holiness or from uh, common to uh, holy or, you know, away from profane to, and that's not true. We're not, it's, it's, it's not that way. You're not going from point A to point B. The whole Bible is about getting back to where, where it started. And you remember that's um, the very first letter of the first word of scripture is the enlarged bet. That's the house, right? And we've gone through all that stuff. The house that God is building for his son and his son's wife and his children. And that's the whole purpose. God wants to dwell with his children and from the very first letter of scripture, that's the story. And the whole rest of scripture is the account of how that's going to happen and the trials and tribulations and, you know, Adam and Kava and, you know, that didn't, didn't go as, as planned. And so he, he had to work out a way to bring them back. And, uh, you know, I mean, you know, all the stories, you've got Noah and it, this happens over and over and over and over again. And he's just trying to dwell with his people. And, and we've, talked about that um, in the in the tabernacle in the wilderness right that was his whole point is i want to dwell with my people i'm going to dwell right in the smack center of our people 
So we're going to build this tabernacle and the, the Holy of Holies and the Ark of the Covenant and everything is going to be right there in the center. And I can dwell there with my people. And that's the way it continually works is he wants to dwell with his people. He wants them living in his house. And we seem to be incapable of holding up our end of the bargain. And it doesn't work out and he's forced to leave because he can't be in the presence of unholiness and sin and you know the things that we are and do and uh, but that story is cyclical all through scripture and that's that that's the lesson for us right is that that's the ultimate goal you know it's to get to heaven and you know all this stuff well that's true-ish but there's more to it. It's because our creator wants to live with us and he makes it so that that will happen. And that's the cycles of righteousness. And we tend as, um, you know, 21st century American Christians, we just don't think that way. We think linearly. And that's that's not going to do you much good in scripture. I mean, it actually, it fouls you up seriously because you miss uh, so much of what's going on. And when you, when you think about, and again, we've talked about this 48, 48,000 different churches, 38,000 different denominations of Christian churches. I don't know how that's possible, but even if it was just 38, you know, the question is the book says the same thing. If you're Methodist or freemason or whatever you are the bible still says the same thing how is it you get all of these different groups that have all of these different doctrines and all these different understandings of the same thing and it shouldn't be but that's how it happens is we think linearly we see something in scripture and we just take it and then we form a doctrine and then before you know it you've got a denomination without reading on and seeing what it meant because that's how we roll right and uh, i'm reminded of you know i talk a lot about scripture being a tapestry right and if you pull one thread you don't just get one thread they're all connected and pretty soon you get the whole thing unravels but but it's all connected and it's just woven into this beautiful pattern and, and, and stuff, but we want to pull one thread and get one thread. And it doesn't work that way. You know, we get the wrong impression of, uh, of scripture. I, you know, I would, one of the classic ones, since we're talking about Romans and Peter and all that stuff is, you know, in Acts, you see Kepha getting this vision, right? A famous vision, you know, the cloth comes down the four corners and all these animals clean and unclean. And the voice says, Peter, kill and eat. And he says, Oh, no, 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 I've never, I would never do that. You know, I'm not going to eat unclean stuff. And so this happens three times. And so from there, people build this doctrine, oh, you can eat anything, you know, that that whole clean, unclean thing is gone now. Well, unless you read on a couple of verses down and you find out that he's talking about the centurion, he's talking about a Gentile because the Jews, the Hebrews had made a man-made law. It's not found in scripture that the, the Jews couldn't 
associate with the Gentiles. They considered the Gentiles to be unclean. And if they were to associate or even go in the house, especially of a Gentile, then they would be unclean. And that's not true. That's not, that's, that's, that's not the scripture. And the same thing with circumcision, right? Yep. That's right. You know, and they made up all these man's rules, which, you know, should be the lesson right there. But so, so the, the, the picture of the cloth coming down, clean, unclean, you know, three times. And then he says, I'm sending somebody to get you. Go to this house, go to the centurion's house, go in the house, talk to them, and they will be saved. So it's this, well, the Gentiles can't be saved. And he said, well, of course they can. Don't call uh, things common that I call uh, clean. And, and I would never, you know, they're, they're my creations. How can they be unclean? So that was, that's the message, right? But we build this whole doctrine about, oh, you can, you know, you can eat bacon and lobster and all that stuff if you want. And, um, you know, and my question is always, well, if, if that's what he was teaching Kepha, then it didn't stick. Because five chapters later, when they're confronted with all these Gentiles coming to, to faith, they said, well, what do we do with them? You know, they're not circumcised. They're not Jewish. They don't know anything about the law. What do we do with them? And you remember the response? As well, we have to make them abstain from fornication. Okay, that's a biggie. And then the other three things were dietary laws. So if, if this letting of the sheet down with all the animals kill and eat had anything to do with the dietary laws, they missed it. Because they didn't believe a bit of it, and they remain, you know, true to the scriptures throughout their lives, and of course the the church did, and still does in a lot of cases. Um, but that's how we get off off point, you know, as we take a a picture, and we don't look at the the entirety of the whole thing, where it started, where it's going, how it's going to end, and how it plays out. Because we're linear, we just go up, drip. Sheep, pig, bacon, awesome. It doesn't say that. You can't look at scripture that way. So, uh, you know, and I tell you this, not because you don't already know that, but um, because of the things that are going on today, you know, and, and um, we, that's exactly how people are. That's exactly how we are. We take one or two things and we run with it. And so I, uh, I, I assembled a, a very partial list of some of the things that you hear. Uh, COVID, monkeypox, inflation, travel restrictions, mask mandates, vaccine mandates, and job loss as a result. Critical race theory, government-sponsored abortion, Black Lives Matter, artificial intelligence, defund the police, riots with no punishment, crime, violent crime, mRNA vaccine not being safe or effective, lockdowns, contact tracing, global health care, carbon footprint, carbon tax, increased taxation, gun control, confiscation, climate change, global warming, global cooling, pollution, Immorality, uh, policemen misconduct, race killings, illegal immigration, open borders, printing of money, targeting of conservatives, Christians, Jews, election fraud, supply chain problems, dependence on the government, social credit scores, transhumanism, LBGTQ plus rights, uh, child grooming and abduction, slavery, religious genocide, 
demonizing all who don't agree with the narrative, groupthink, control of information and discussion, censoring access to the truth, mind control, school shootings and moral failure, lying politicians and media, use of federal law enforcement against normal people, lack of law enforcement against criminals, laws made uh, by, by non-elected officials is what that should earn. Okay. Increasing government control over every aspect of life, universal basic income, technocracy, pitting one group against another, two types of laws, one for us and none for them. The innocent go to jail, the guilty go free, communism, socialism, just to name a few. So those are some of the things that get thrown at us every day over the last year or two, right? And I'm sure you could add all kinds of things that I, you know, I just sat there and, and, and wrote those. Right, because that's some of the stuff. But if you apply the same way we treat the Bible as to this, we do exactly the same thing. We take one or two of these things and we get all incensed about it, and we start, you know, doing whatever it is you're going to do, writing your congressman or picketing or praying or you know whatever. And that's all that happens. You know, there are so many of these things, and we never connect them together. All of these things, if you go to the UN 2030 website, and if you go to the uh, World Economic Forum's website, and you see the big dials with how they're going to process all their stuff and, and make you do what they want you to do, and they have all of these ways that they're going to do it simultaneously, these are all from their website. It's not like it's a mystery. They come right out and they say it. We're going to throw all these things at you and then you're going to be so busy just trying to deal with a few of them, you will never put together that all of these things are the same. And it's like we're talking about with the vaccines. All these people are dying. Their kids are dying. Who ever heard of a 10-year-old boy having a heart attack and dying? And that figure is up 8,800% among vaccinated children. But the parents refuse to make the connection. Because they're so, oh, the vaccine, it saved their life. It would have been so much worse if we hadn't vaccinated them. You know, they're just, they're, it's mind control. They're idiots, basically. Their mind has been sucked out their ears. And it's impossible to explain why they can't make the connection. Like my neighbor, vaccinated twice, boosted, had COVID three times, does not make the connection. No, no, we got, it would have been so much worse if we didn't want to vaccinate. It's like, dude, that's why you got it. I've never been, ever, I never had a flu shot or anything. I've never got the flu or get sick. I don't get COVID. You don't think there's any connection there that, you know, the more shots you get, the more times you get COVID. The more shots you get, the more people die. Because we don't. And we treat the Bible the same way. You know, we look at one picture and go, oh my gosh you know, come up with this doctrine without spending the time and effort to find out what it actually might mean, what the context of it is. And every Bible teacher out there says, oh, context and content, you got to find the context. But we never do. That's why we have 38,000 different Christian denominations. Because every single guy who read the Bible read one little teeny tiny part of it and go, oh my gosh, let's build a doctrine on that. And then that doctrine turns into a denomination, it's a church, and now everybody in the church believes that. And none of them apparently have ever read the Bible to its conclusion or put, you know, put it into context. That's the way the world is being treated with this thing. So um, 
it's called order through chaos. It's a, it's an actual plan. That's how you do it. You know, Saul Alinsky in his book did the same thing. And, and they tell you just specifically, you throw so many things at the person who you're arguing with that they can't possibly answer them all. They're so ridiculous. They don't even have an answer and you just keep them coming. Just keep them and you keep them off balance. And then you go ahead and do what you want because they're so confused and tired of arguing with you. It doesn't matter. So it's order through chaos. And that's what they're doing. So back in um, the late 60s, a guy named Klaus Schwab began to think all this stuff through, how you can control the world like you know any good uh, dictator would do. And in 1971, he founded a thing called the European Economic Forum, which late, later became the World Economic Forum. And the basic premise of this, and this is how they all start. They're all, they all sound like it's a good thing. It was called stakeholder capitalism. And the idea was that all of these companies that are making tons of money for their shareholders should also be responsible for the stakeholders, that is the people who buy their product. If your company is making $20 billion, some of that money should go towards the people who buy your product because not everybody who buys your product is rich and famous and well-off and healthy and all that stuff. Put some of that money back. And, and it was sort of, uh, well, it's called economic fascism because you're forced to do it. But most people would look at that and listen to that and hear what he had to say and recognize that that's, that's a slippery slope. You know, that's communism. Well, that's fascism. That's not how the world should run. But we all agree that some company making just trillions of dollars should have some obligation to the people, right? I mean, they can afford it and they should. And that was his whole point. At least that's how he presented it. And so he's worked since 1971. So that's what, 40, 50 years. Um, to get everything in place to make this happen. And if it had stayed like that, that would have been, it's still not right. You shouldn't force anybody to do anything against their will. They just had a world forum a couple weeks ago. Uh huh. One of his cohorts, they were all on there. Yeah, I'm sure. We don't need to know what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. You don't need to know anything about me. But yeah, that was that it started as and, and originally Klaus Schwab had, I think, 60 major corporations that that bought into this, you know, Lufthansa Airlines and um, 3M. I mean, there's, you know, Pepsi and, you know, different companies like that. And, you know, it's impossible to say how many of them bought into it because they actually thought that was a good idea. Or they thought that it would sell more product. Well, sure. But that's the thing. He's been working this for 50 years. 
50 years. Yep. Well, and that was that that became the term. And you've heard presidents since the first Bush talk about the Great Reset. And all the Great Reset means is is what Klaus Schwab postulated in the 60s and 70s, that there shouldn't be people or companies making that much money without spreading to the people who need it. There are people in Africa and India and, you know, who knows where that that are that are. I mean, their lives are, you know, I wouldn't want to live there. Can't we help them? You know, a hundred bucks in India goes a long ways. Doesn't go very far here. About a burger and a half. But in India, that's a big deal. So if you had a number of companies, a number of big companies paying trillions of dollars, giving some percentage of the funds to, and that becomes the issue to who? Who do you give it to? Who organizes all this? Who orchestrates this? Who decides who's going to get the money and who doesn't? Who decides what the money's going to go for and what it's not going to go for? And you know what happens all through history, the same thing has happened. All that money goes to somebody's pocket. Nobody who needs it ever gets it. It's, you know, people are corrupt. And if you give them the opportunity to be more corrupt, they will be more corrupt. And so I, I, I don't know. I Maybe Klaus Schwab back in the day really, really, really thought that he could help the entirety of humanity. But that seems unlikely. It's never happened. There's never been anybody like that. And it seems like it's not him because it has morphed into what you're saying. Absolute and utter control over every single person. And they'll, oh yeah, they'll give you $1,000 a month as your universal basic income. And you don't have to work. But in, in trade for that, they're going to take your house. And they're going to tell you where you have to live and what kind of car you have to drive and what kind of work you have to do and how much you have to work and whether you get medication or not. And if you start smart enough, they start cutting things off and they reduce your money and they take away, move you to a worse house and give you a crappier car. And they won't let your kids go to a good school. That's what Canada's doing. That's what China has done. And that's, that's the deal. So the Great Reset has been around for 40 years. People have talked about it, but it was officially announced. And I didn't know this, that it was officially announced. Everybody knew about it in uh, uh, June of 2020. So the COVID thing happened, happened, you know, just happened, right? What a coincidence. And then they announced the Great Reset. And let me just read you a couple of quotes from the guys in the World Economic Forum and in various places like that. This is an opportunity that can be seized. We should take advantage of this unprecedented opportunity to reimagine our world. The moment must be seized upon to take advantage of this unique window of opportunity. For those fortunate enough to find themselves in industries naturally resilient to the pandemic, and read that government, big tech, uh, Amazon, you know, anything that's not actual people doing actual jobs, making actual stuff and making an actual difference. Those companies are completely resilient to anything like this. In fact, they make more. The worse the state of us is, the more they make. And if you're gonna lock people in their homes and you're gonna shut their businesses down and you're gonna do all these things and they have no choice but to order all the stuff they need online or through all these big tech companies. The big tech companies get richer and richer and richer. And oddly, 
the stakeholders aren't getting any of that money. You know, you look at Jeff Bezos and, and Zuckerman and, you know, all these guys, and they've made record amounts of billions of dollars, trillions of dollars. Well, the stakeholders didn't get any of it. The little people didn't get any of it. So the government steps in and gives you a little check here and a little check there, but that's your tax dollars. They're, they're not giving you anything. They just raise your taxes to pay for it and they print more money and cause inflation and make it even worse for you. But that's the whole idea, right? Is to crush you. So you look at, and, and it's, I would almost recommend it. It's frightening to do. But if you go to uh, the UN website and you look up their agenda 2030, it has, I think 70, it's a circle with I think 72 little pie shaped things. And each one of those 72 things is one of those things that, that I mentioned. Uh, could be LBGTQ, whatever it is. It could be COVID. It could be, you know, whatever. The, all of those things they knew beforehand, long before COVID came out. And they knew that they could use them to force people into what they deem as the, the great reset, the new life, right? Except they're forgetting the part about the stakeholders. All of these guys are making tons of money, but it's not filtering back to the whole purpose of the great reset, right? All it's doing is it makes the rich richer, the poor poorer, and it gives them more power. And the more power they have, the more power hungry they become. And you know, you, you know how that works. So in various written plans from, uh, again, from the UN, from the World Health Organization, from the World Economic Forum, from several places, they all have speculated what the perfect population of the earth would be. You know, it'd be good for the earth and it would be good for people, but I don't care about that. So all of these figure between 500 million and 1 billion should be the total population on Earth. Okay, awesome, great. Except the problem is there's 8 billion. So who gets to pick which seven or seven and a half billion people die? And it's, it's hilarious to me on TV, you watch all these Congress people and these movie stars and these sports figures, and they're all idiots. They couldn't, they couldn't build their own house to save their lives. They don't know anything about anything, but now they're experts on everything. And these people are the ones out there supporting all this. Oh yeah, this is what we need to do. Okay, so you're gonna get in line? You're gonna be the first to die? Oh, well, not me, I'm too valuable. But you know, some of you little people, you know, cause stuff's gonna happen, COVID and the bird flu and you know, I get hit by a bus. Yeah, you know, we need to reduce the population of the earth. And the thing is, these people go on television. Bill Gates and Klaus Schwab have been on television dozens and dozens of times for the last 15 years saying they're going to reduce the population of the world through vaccines and health care. And nobody goes, uh, yo, what do you mean? They all just laugh and oh, I'm on the team. I'm golden. They're not going to off me. They're going to off you. Well, I have some bad news for them. 
it's not going to work that way. If they're going to off seven eighths of the population on earth, you better believe politicians, movie stars, sports figures, and other useless wastes of humanity are going to be gone. They, they provide nothing of any value for the population. And they're just a, a thorn in the side to these people who are actually running the earth. And it was interesting back in the 60s or 70s, a Russian guy defected from the KGB. Cloud, no, what was his name? Boris Kasparov or something. No, he's a chess player. Uh, anyway, he went through this whole thing about how they do it. And it's a 15-year plan. There's a, there's a one-year plan. And then after that's done, there's a three-year. And then, you know, anyway, it takes five years to do, or 15 years to do all this. And he said, we've done it. And he lists off all the countries that are now socialist that used to be free, you know, Panama and Costa Rica and all these little things. And um, he says, the funny thing is, when we start doing this, there's always a percentage of the population that gets behind what we're doing. We don't have to coerce them. We don't have to beg them. They just fall in line and start spouting the corporate line. And he says, those are the people that when we finally take over are the most disappointed and realize they've been bamboozled and they can no longer be useful. So they, they're killed. And every time I see one of these politicians and these movie stars out here spouting the most ridiculous horse manure that my dog knows is a lie, I, I think of Boris and who is going to get killed first because they're going to be so disappointed that all of this stuff didn't come to pass like they promised that it would, like they told everybody that it would, that they'll be useless. Yep, I'm sure. But it's, you know, and I, and I, and maybe incorrectly and unfairly, but I kind of compare this with, with Christians, you know, they do, they do the same thing. They read a verse and make a doctrine about it. And then all of a sudden there's all kinds of people defending it. It says, though, none of them have ever read it to its conclusion or see, like, you know, they say all these things about Paul, like in the book, you know, that Paul said these things. And then it gets interpreted as, oh, you can eat pork, you can eat lobster, you, you know, you know any, any of that stuff. You don't have to obey the Torah. Well, but 17 other times, he said, you absolutely do have to obey the Torah and you can't eat pork. So maybe you should go back to that one time and see what it really said. Because maybe, just maybe, you didn't understand it correctly. And it becomes this huge doc because people want to hear it. They want that. Everybody loves bacon. You know, there's no doubt bacon and lobster. That's good. So you don't want to have to give that up. You want to listen to the guy that says, Oh, you can eat that regardless of all of the other facts and figures and words. And, and, and you know, all the, the, the preponderance of evidence is that you can't, but you've got one guy says one thing, one time that you might, that's the one you glom onto. And it's the same with what's going on in the world. You've got all, I mean, I read you just a partial list of some of the crap that's going on, right? And you've got people on both sides of every one of those teeny tiny little issues and they get all incensed one way or the other. And there's people picketing that you have to be vaccinated. You're killing my grandmother. And there's people that are saying, people are dying from being vaccinated. Well, I, I don't know, you know, 
they both can't be true. And I obviously line up with the vaccines are killing people, but there's going to be people on both sides because most people just won't read to the end of the chapter. They don't want to understand what it really says, what it's really about. And this is a, this is a game plan. This is what they do. They've been doing this for 50 years. They've been running rehearsals and, and stages and mock events on COVID for 20 years so that they know exactly how people respond and that they can come up with just the right thing. And if you, and I had you guys do this, I don't know if any of you did it years ago, two or three years ago, two years ago, go onto UN 2020 website and look up some of their slogans. You know, we're all in this together. Do this for the health of everybody. You know, all the slogans you hear, they had those written long before COVID existed. That's the, you know, we all, we're all in this together. You know, it's like, really? And nobody's even interested in looking at this multi-million dollar website that they wrote. And they don't have any fear of anybody actually reading it and taking it seriously because nobody ever does. If they did, it, you know, it'd be a head scratcher. Why? What do you mean they want to take my rights away? What do you mean they want to take my house and make me go live in an apartment in New York City and work as a garbage collector? Huh? They'll just silence anyway. Yeah, they, they will and they may. And if it were not, and I, I suggest this is true. I've never read this, but I know this is true. If it were not for the fact there were 400 million guns in this country, we would be just like China. We would be. But they can't figure it out. They can't figure out a white Christian guy moving to a farm in Delta that they know is armed to the teeth but can't prove it, who can grow his own food, has his own water, and has his own power. What are we going to do? Because I can't send 100 United Nations blue-hatted troops into Delta, Colorado. They'll gun them down before they get past the stoplight. What are we going to do? And I would suggest to you that, that, that we are the final line of defense. That those of us who, A, know the truth, and B, don't live in the city and are not disarmed like they are, if, if it wasn't for us, we, it would be Shanghai. We'd all be locked in our apartment somewhere. Like, uh, yeah, Shanghai and all those people that, you know, the COVID, because COVID outbreak, now they're all locked in their houses. They got no food. No food. No pets. Yeah. yeah. Can't even eat your pets. The pet problem is over. Yeah. <laughs> no more feces on the street in yeah, Shanghai. People are jumping off buildings because they can't, you know, it's too much. I know it's and it's coming. And the thing is, you know, everybody, oh, I shouldn't say everybody, uh, a great number of people who believe like I do, and I suspect you all do, that all of this stuff is pre planned, it's been planned for 50 years or 100 years. They just never had the technology to do it. Now they have the technology to do it. Now they've got all these giant corporations in place, they've got all these uh, movie stars and sports figures, you know, parroting their stuff. Uh, they can they control the governments. The governments don't control them. And the, the thing is, if, um, you know, and I've talked about this before, I can't, I don't know where it is. Uh, Judge Gorsuch wrote a book called The Republic, If You Can Keep It, which is just quoting Benjamin Franklin's uh, line. And it was, uh, it was the worst book I ever read. It's a terrible, boring uh, book. And it tells you why there's nothing we can do about this. 
because the, the upshot of it is the Constitution says the legislature has to make laws. Only legislators, congressmen and senators can make laws. That's the Constitution. And if they make a law, we have to obey it. That's the deal. If you don't obey it, there's a penalty. Simple as that. Could be jail, could be fine, whatever. But they've abrogated that. They don't do it anymore. They have, they have shined it on to these uh, uh, non-official corporate sponsors or the EPA or Ford Motor Company or whatever. And these guys write their own laws. And they're enforced by a completely different judicial system and a completely different yeah, police department. And there's nothing that the Supreme Court or any judge can do because 97% of the laws written in the last decade have been written by other than legislators. They've been written by these unelected bureaucrats. They're not even legal. But we have to obey them. And he's not clear why, <laughs> because they're not legal. But the fact is 97% of the laws written are written by unelected bureaucrats. So what difference does it make if every person in the country got together and voted for Mark to be president and Mark became president and Mark became a staunch right-wing conservative Christian white man president, it wouldn't matter. Yeah, bald, well, that's a new twist. It wouldn't matter because 97% of the laws have nothing to do with him and the Senate and the Congress and these guys pontificating on TV like they're doing something important. They're not doing anything. They're, they're destroying the country is what they're doing. Yeah, exactly, and makes more. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's crazy. But when you, when you start to understand that stuff, then you start to realize you don't have any power to shape the direction of your country. And soon every nation on earth will look just like Shanghai. And the few people in power who are unelected bureaucrats will have all the control over every person and can do anything they want to do. And the only reason I bring all this up is because this is exactly what the Bible says. You know, there are companies, we've talked about BlackRock before and the BlackRock and the three other investment companies that control 85% of all the investments, they're all sold out. They're members of uh, World Economic Forum's board. They've been to their young leadership school. They, they, they're part and parcel to the deal. What are you going to do? You can't make an investment that does, doesn't benefit you. It benefits them. So if you can't make an investment, what else do you do? You know, there's nothing... Where do you go? What do you, how do you, you have no control over your life. The big corporations, they're all sold out to that because they're making tons of money and they're not gonna give the money up to the stakeholders for crying out loud. We steal the stakeholders money. Why would we give it back to them? There's nothing we can do. And that's, that's terrible and that's awful. But let me just read you. There's, and I assume you guys have heard of this. The World Economic Forum, Klaus Schwab, has a school. And everybody who's anybody goes to that school and is indoctrinated in this uh, 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 stakeholder 
capital and uh, economic fascism and all this stuff. And they all believe the same thing and they say the same thing and they parrot the same thing. Um, and, and, and the list, there's thousands th and many of them like uh, Justin Trudeau. He's the prime minister of Canada. Doesn't get any higher than that, right? You know, he's the, he's the, there are several heads of countries. There are all sorts of uh, senators and congressmen. Mayor Pete, Chelsea Clinton, Austin Goolsby, you see him on the time, Gavin Newsom, Samantha Power, uh, Andrew Sorkin, Mark Zuckerberg, Larry Page, who's Facebook, Dr. Sanjay Gupta on CNN, Nikki Haley, Dan Dana Perino, Huma Abedin, Jared Polis, Emmanuel Marcon, you know, the French dictator, uh, Alexander Soros, who's George's son, uh, Alicia Garza, who's the founder of BLM, Adriana Cargill of the Cargill Fortune. I mean, it goes on and on. Anybody who's anybody has gone through this indoctrination camp. Merkel was another one. You know, there are leaders of many, many countries that are that, that believe all this, that that want that, that are pushing this to happen. So what do we do? <laughs> yep, that's what Dan does. I got mine out of, out of sawdust. I could probably turn her back on. Um, but all these people either believe in the Great Reset or they believe they will be part of the, well, the 500 million left alive. Because if you have a billion people, Klaus Schwab has said, if there's a billion people left on earth, we need 500 million of them to be Chinese and Japanese because they're so compliant. So that means it's a one-to-one, -one, you know, everybody has their own slave, right? You have your own, if there's 500 million people that have made the cut and there's 500 million people to serve them, and it's probably more like 250 million have made the cut and 750 million to serve them. And that's, the future that these people desire. And do they desire it because they really, really, really think it would be better or because they just want to be on the winning team? I, I have no idea. Isn't the opportunity for those people to continue to be rich go away because now the population that's been their consumers is- Yeah, but now they own everything. They own every piece of property, they own every vehicle, they own every factory, and it doesn't cost them anything to get, well, but you don't need as many workers. But everybody's still gonna need, see, that's the thing I don't get. Everybody's still gonna need somebody to maintain their lawn, fix their blinds, fix their plumbing, paint their house, because they're not gonna do it. How's that gonna happen? And it's, it seems ridiculous to say, well, I don't think they ever thought that through, because obviously they have thought it through. But, uh, and I don't know how it's going to work. But all of that brings me to this, and this might seem a little disconnected. Bamidbar, or Numbers, chapter 7, uh, verse 10 through 12. And the princes offered for the dedicating of the altar in that day, that in that day that it was anointed. And even the princes offered their offerings before the altar. And Yahuwah said unto Moshe, they shall offer their offering each prince on his day to dedicating the altar and after he had offered his offering on the first day was Neshan the son of Aminadab from the tribe of Yehuda. so to put this in 
chronological history, Yahuwah created the entire universe. And out of the universe, he created a place called Eden. And in the garden of Eden, he put Adam. And then out of Adam, he created Chava, Eve. And they lived in the midst of the garden, in the midst of Eden, in the midst of the world. And that was his house and those were his people. And that was his desire from the very first enlarged bed in Bereshit. And then that didn't work out because the people, Chava, didn't obey. And Chava didn't obey, presumably because Adam didn't tell her. He didn't give her all the information. And she was seduced by someone who lived originally from outside of the garden and of Eden, who came in. And yeah, and what was, what was Adam's job? It was to keep it safe. Right? And he didn't do it. He didn't keep the Nakash, the serpent, out. And so sin entered and they had to be cast out. So at that point, a plan was put into effect to bring these people back into the house, into the family, to be like it was. And you know the rest of the story. You go through Cain and Abel. Okay, they both knew the truth. One of them chose not to obey and killed the other one. And then you've got uh, all the, the, the 10 generations. You get to Noah. By the time you get to him, nobody was obeying. And they all had to go. So you've got Noah and the three kids. Well, one of the kids and at least two of the wives were from the genealogy of Cain. So, and, and the, the Lord said this. I mean, we, we read the verse. Who himself said he did that on purpose to bring that seed into the new world. And you think, well, why? That seems like a bad call. But of course, it wasn't a bad call because there has to be an option. You have to have a choice. If you don't have a choice, then it's not real. If you're just doing something because that's the only possible action you can take or know, there's no challenge in that. So if there's a if there's a if there's a choice, and that's the whole purpose with Yeshua, right? He came as a man. Well, what does that mean? That he was subject to desires and needs and wants of regular men, and and he overcame them to show us that that could be done. We didn't need to live with sin. We could choose not to, but he would provide a path, right? So he shed his blood, which cleansed, cleansed the temple, which allowed those who chose to, to enter the temple and receive salvation. But not, you know, it didn't just, his blood does not offer salvation. It offers it, but it does not grant salvation to, to, to anyone. You have to, desire it. You have to go into the temple and seek it. And he's made that possible to do. So you go through all of that stuff. Um, and you get to, you, you get to, well, that was a little after the fact, you get to this guy, you get to the temple. They've, Moshe has gone to the mountain. He's gotten the, the Torah and the, that they didn't write the Torah then. They all knew it. It was just finally committed to writing. They all knew the, the things of the Torah, and we you know, know that from Cain and Abel, right? Because one obeyed and one didn't. 
So he came down with the tablets and the instructions to build the tabernacle in the wilderness so that Yahuwah could live with his people. That all happened. The tabernacle was built. The people were there. They were in this giant cross in the desert. Moshe set the whole thing up. He uh, uh, anointed it, got the priests taught. It's opening day. The new tabernacle is ready to roll. Yahuwah's in it. And the people want to make offerings. So he says, okay, every tribe bring an offering. Okay, so who gets to be the first guy? Would that be a significant honor to be the first guy to go into the new temple that houses the very God of all creation is living there and you get to bring him an offering? That would be awesome. Okay, so the guy, Meshon, the word means enchanter or serpent. Well, that seems weird. Why would he get to go first? Why would he even get to go? So you look at what the, and for what it's worth, what the rabbis and what Hebrew history say is, is back a few years, Yahuwah brought all his people, well, he didn't bring all his people, he actually brought a very small amount of his people out of Egypt. Most chose to stay, just like in Babylon and everywhere else. But the ones that came out, came out and they didn't go straight up the coast to the promised land. They went the other way, right? God told them to go the other way, the long way. And he led them into the mouth of the gorges. So there they are, sheer walls on both sides, Red Sea in front, and now the Egyptian army's chasing behind them. You know the story. Everybody's going, well, this is a bad call. Would you bring us out here just to die in the desert where there are not enough graves in Egypt? You know, Hebrews, they can get a little... So... Moshe does what he always does, turns to the Lord and says, yo, what's up? And he says, take your staff and point it at the water. And he takes the staff and points it at the water and the water parts. And we've talked about this before that at, at, where, they, where we think they crossed. It's 12 miles wide and the water is 250 feet deep at its deepest. So, okay, so this water parts and you've got these walls of water, maybe 200, this is 16 feet, maybe 250 feet tall full of water. And remember the the pillar of fire now moved in front so they could see this. And the pillar of cloud was now behind, so the Egyptians were in the dark. They could see all this water. Who would go? Who would be the first to go? Nobody wanted to go because it's scary. Who went? Nashon went. And he took his tribe and he said, this is better than that. Let's go. And he booked it. And then everybody started following. He's the guy that his faith led to all the people crossing the Red Sea with the walls of water on both sides, the Egyptian army in the dark behind him. That's the guy. It was his faith that did that. So he got the honor of bringing the first offering into the brand new temple that housed the God of all creation. How cool is that? So what about us? We are facing something very similar, I would suggest. We're walled in on both sides. There's nothing we, we can't vote our way out. We couldn't shoot our way out even if we wanted to. How are we going to get out of this? Klaus Schwab and Bill Gates and their armies coming behind us 
swinging computer cords and vaccine things and masks. And in front of us, there's an immovable object and on both sides we can't climb. What's gonna happen? How do we get out of that? We don't. I would suggest it's just like, because everything is cyclical. Everything works in a cycle. I would suggest this time, God is gonna do something just as awesome. He's gonna provide a way for us to go. No, exactly. And yeah, in three or four verses we read Isaiah 46, 9 and 10, and Ecclesiastes 3:15. And yeah, exactly. So, okay, so that should give us some hope because I don't see a way out of it. I mean, I'm doing all I can do. I bought a farm, okay? I have water, I have power, I'll have animals, you know, I'm I have guns, I'll do everything I can do. But that's not going to solve the problem, right? The only thing that's going to solve the problem is God. And he's going to have to do something. And when he does it, I bet it's scary. And people are going to go, I don't know about that. I can't swim. And I don't even like squid. But somebody is going to have to step out and go, I'm going. If God's going, I'm going. I'm following, no matter what it looks like. Well, what if that's one of you? What if that's all of us? What if of the 10,000 little groups like this all over the country, they all go, I'll go. And everybody piles in behind them. Because he went, and you know how people are. They're sheep. I've read that somewhere. If one goes, they all go. Nashon went. And he got a great honor for doing it. And I suggest to you that we're in exactly the same boat. And I suggest to you that it's, you know, that's what Paul says, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, right? We, people living at the last days in the end times generation, we are to look to the Exodus generation. Well, this is one of those things. What did the Exodus generation do? They found themselves in a spot where they could not fix it. It was out of their control. And they had to let God do it. And when God did it, they had to accept it. And they had to go through it. And they had to do it. And it doesn't sound difficult from here. Like who wouldn't have gone through? But you've all been to aquariums and you've seen 16 feet of water. And tell me one of you hasn't even just for a moment thought, man, I hope that glass doesn't break. <laughs> well, this is 250 feet of water. This is a whole lake. It's a big lake but you have to be willing to go and you trust him. You have faith in him. But what about the people at church that just never read past, you know, they didn't read through the end of the chapter. They don't know it's all cyclical. They don't know it's going to happen again. They don't know the promises. They don't know what he's done before. They don't know the laws and commandments and judgments and statutes of the Lord. They have no faith because they don't know. They've been taught stuff and they've just gone, Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah, that sounds good. But they never read it for themselves. They never went to the bottom of the page. They never put it in context. I mean, I'm hoping they have enough faith, but what if they don't? What if they go, oh, that's, you know, the Bible said somewhere about somebody's doing something that looks maybe like God. I'm not going over there. Well, how would they know if it's God or not? Okay, so just before this section where the, and by the way, the 12 princes of the 12 tribes 
when they went into the tabernacle to give their offerings at great length. There's 89 verses in this chapter. It explains in great detail every offering that every prince gave. And every offering was absolutely identical. The same number of gold spoons and the same number of turkey doves of the same poundage of, you know, whatever it was, it was exactly the same, which I thought was interesting because we're all exactly the same. And the, the rabbis will tell you that to the people in that tribe and to the priest receiving them, they knew what that meant to that group. And it meant a different thing to that group. And it meant a different thing to that group, but it was the same offering but it meant something different to each group. <laughs> well, we, we have, you know, what? 12 people, 15 people, I don't know. And we're all different, right? We have different interests and desires and wants and needs. And yet our offering is the same. But if, if we each gave the same thing, it would mean something different to each of us because of our, the, the differences that he made in each of us. And that's what was going on here. So before, well, now after this, the Lord calls Moshe over. Dude, we're going to move this whole contraption. It's like a mash unit. We're going to take it. So that means we got to have guys. And this is what I want you to do. We're going to take the sons of Levi. And we're go I'm going to tell you that each son has a job. And those people are going to do that. They're going to move that part of the tabernacle to the next place we go. And it goes through chapter and verse of who does what and all this stuff. And the sons of Levi, and it's just, it's just interesting, or it was interesting to me as you read this, you would think the firstborn son of Levi would get the job, would get the cool job, right? To, to the guy who can haul the Ark of the Covenant the guy who can haul all the cool furniture, because those things led when, when the whole troop moved, they led, right? Those guys were out in front. Everybody saw them carrying the cool stuff. It'd be awesome. Right. And then he goes through the different sons. Well, the firstborn son did not get the cool stuff. The firstborn son was assigned the curtains and the boards and the ropes and the third board son was assigned the sockets and the gold and the silver and the things and they're so heavy and they're so boring and nobody cares and they weren't out in front they were you know wherever they were and it seems like well that's not fair i mean they should like be able to rotate right you know i want to carry the ark sometimes but that's not the way it was and it's just interesting that as you read through all of this and all of this stuff, and we won't, I could, but we won't. Um, how does that work? Because the sons of the Kohathites were the ones who were picked to carry the cool stuff, the ark and the, the good looking stuff. Well, the Kohathites were the tribe of Korah and Aviram and Dathan. And those are the guys who decided they needed to take over for Moshe. 
because they could do a better job than he was. And they went to him and said, you're out, we're in, we're gonna do this better. And you remember what Moshe said? Okay, let's just ask God though first, okay? And so he goes to the Lord and he says, hey, I'm okay being done, you know, but you need to, uh, you need to explain exactly who you want to lead the troop. And there's, you know, you should read it. It's an interesting section of scripture. Um, number 16. And you know the story. So he calls the Kohathites, the Korah and Abiram and Dathan and all their families and stuff and says, bring your censers, bring your incense. We're going we're gonna to take this to the Lord and see what he says. And they did. And they stood there and the ground opened up and swallowed Korah and Abiram and Dathan and all their families and all their wealth and shut back over them. And that was that. And then fire came out from heaven and killed 250 of their men. And then a plague started throughout the whole camp. And Moshe saw the plague and he told Aaron to get the censer out of the temple, fill it with incense and run into the middle of the people. And he did, and he stopped the plague. Why would that tribe get the honor of carrying all the cool stuff? Because God doesn't look at what your family has done. He looks at you. He looks at me. I'm rewarded for what I did. I'm punished for what I do. Not my dad or my children. Or It's me. It's all on me, right? I can't, I can't stand at the, at the judgment scene and go, well, that's what the pastor told me. Well, and the pastor may be in trouble for misrepresenting something, but it doesn't save me because I didn't take the time to learn the truth. It's all on me. It's all on you. You stand alone in front of God. And then you see the sons of Mieri. They are the guys hauling the third son of Levi. They got stuck with the, the gold and the silver and the bronze and the sockets and, you know, just, but they were given wagons. Nobody else had a wagon. Well, the curtain guys got one wagon and two oxen. These guys got two, two, two wagons and four oxen. So they didn't actually have to hump it because all the, the gold stuff, you know, they had to put it on their shoulders and carry it every step of the way, which it might be cool, but that's a lot of work. But that's not a cool job, right? That's just like the backstage guy. But the reality is, there's no temple without them. You have to have the sockets in place to put the boards in, to put the bars in, to put the canvas over or the badger skin over to put the ropes around before you have a tabernacle, before you have a place to put all the, the furniture and the cool stuff. You're carrying the furniture and the cool stuff and you don't have a tabernacle, you have nothing. You got a bunch of cool stuff. So what? I'd rather have the tabernacle without the cool stuff than the cool stuff without the tabernacle. So these guys in the background that nobody's ever going to see that are sweating in the dust, hauling all of this stuff, the whole place depends on them. And I look at all of us, we're never going to be some televangelist or have a church with 50,000 people in it, or we're never going to be anything. We're the guys in the back hauling the heavy stuff. And without the heavy stuff, there's no temple. And without the temple, 
there's no ark. And without the ark, there's no God. And if you want God to be in the middle of you, there have to be people like us that haul all the stuff that make it possible. So it's, it's cool to be, you know, Michael Jordan or whoever. But it's better to be the guy with the stuff. And that's who we are. And I just thought, um, as you look at the things, the way the world's going, and the ultimate destination of the world, and we've talked about, you know, some of the end times prophecies and stuff, and all of these things line up. You know, we know that a quarter of the people are going to die as a result of uh, a sorcery, Greek is pharmakia, as a result of a medicine, as a result of a vaccine, it's going to kill 2 billion people. And then of the 6 billion, a third of those, another 2 billion die. And then of the 4 billion, another third, a billion and a half die. And you're going to be down almost to the point where Klaus Schwab wants you to be. That's exactly what the Bible said. Everything that he says is exactly what the Bible said. So when I see him alive at this point in time, just barely, I mean, the guy's 80 something. You're not going to be alive for much longer. He's the picture of biblical prophecy. So when I say this, you know, we have years, not decades. It's because Klaus Schwab is as old as he is. It's because Bill Gates has said all the things that he said. It's because all of these things have happened exactly the way the Bible said they would happen, written thousands and thousands of years ago. He already knew this, obviously, he's God. He already knew this was going to happen and what it was going to look like. And it looks just like now. And that's awesome. That's the good news. If we're the guys in the back carrying all the sockets and the tents and the, and the ropes and the boards and the bars, it's not so cool if, if, if you're just out there going, well, I, you know, I don't know. I like, I like bacon. You know, yeah, Sunday's good. I'm, I'm good with working Sunday. Oh, no, we don't have to do the feast. No, no, no. I don't know, dude. So I have um, put together some websites, which are maybe up there. Yeah, that's fine. I don't expect you to read them. Just some sites. If you know, if if you take exception to anything I said today, um, here's sites, and I'll send them to you. I mean, I will send you one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. I've got thirteen websites. And I've included in them the ones I got today that aren't on there that are uh, the increase of heart fatalities among 10 to 14 year old boys or 8,800% and, you know, stuff like that. Um, and you can look them up if you want. You already know what the truth is and you probably don't really need to see all this stuff. But this is the history of the Great Reset and the history of Klaus Schwab and the World Economic Forum and all these companies that exist to support and why your vote is never going to matter. I don't know that it ever mattered. But it's definitely not going to matter now because the government has nothing to do with what's going on. It's these uh, unelected boards and officials that now control every country in the world. And it's right out of scripture. So that's awesome and excellent news. And just remember when we find ourselves, finally find ourselves between the sheer rock of the mouth of gorges with the Red Sea in front of us, an Egyptian army behind us, there's going to be an awesome miracle. And God is going to do something. And you're going to know exactly who did it and why he did it. And you're going to be the happiest person 
that has ever lived since Nashon and the boys went across in the Red Sea. So I don't know, there we are. <laughs>